comes what feel like the coldest and darkest days of the year. But right in the middle of the month sits a shining spot of light. At least if you're the romantic type. Americans will spend an average of $146 buying gifts for their sweethearts, or people they hope will become their sweethearts this Valentine's Day. At the same time, journalists and bloggers will be furiously writing stories trying to make sense of love, attraction, and sex. Those things are the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Our regular panelists are Department of Statistics Chair John Baylor and Department of Media, Journalism, and Film Chair Richard Campbell. Today's special guest is David Spiegelhalter, Winton Professor for the Public Understanding of Risk in the Statistical Laboratory, Center for Mathematical Sciences, University of Cambridge. He's also the author of the book, Sex by Numbers, What Scientists Can Tell Us About Sexual Behavior. Thank you for being here this afternoon, David. No, thank you for asking me. Uh, just to start off the conversation, how did someone who seems to be focused on communicating risk get interested in studying the numbers behind sex? Yeah, a good question. I ask myself that myself, <laughs> yeah, I ask myself that question sometimes as well. Um, I, it was my publisher, really. Um, I, I did a book on risk with, with my publisher, and then he said, oh, I'd like to do, you to do something else. And uh, they worked with a welcome collection, which is this exhibition space, well-funded in, in London, that puts on medical exhibitions. And, uh, and they were going to put on an exhibition um, about sex, about history of sex research with, with uh, Kinsey mm-hmm. and uh, surveys and so on and so on. And they wanted a book to accompany it. So essentially, this is a book to be to accompany an exhibition. Mm. What's been the reaction to this book? Oh, it's not bad. It it got incredibly good reviews. I was amazed. And it it was serialized for a week in a popular newspaper, double page spread every week. Wow. But then it didn't actually sell fantastically well, <laughs> to be honest. So let's, let's say it's one of those critical but not popular successes, um, and uh, which is a bit disappointing. But I, I, can, I think I can understand why. It sort of falls between two stools. That, you know, it, it, it's, it was sort of marketed as a popular book, Sex by Numbers, with that title and so on. And it was on the sort of, you know, from a popular publisher. And yet, actually, you know, it's a book about statistics. It's quite, it's got graphs in it. You know, I tried to keep the numbers down, but actually it ends up not being a really sort of, you know, fluid read. Um, I think it's quite good, but I, 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 in, in retrospect, it probably been better to be in, in marketed as a slightly more technical book for students in social science, because that's actually what it is. It's quite, actually quite a serious book about the difficulties of doing research, serious research in this, in this complex area. David, this is Richard Campbell, and my job is to ask about the journalism side of this. Mm. And what did journalists get right and wrong when they're writing about you and covering the work that you've done, not just in this book, but in general, possibly? <laughs> Yeah, I, I got a very good relationship with journalists on the whole. Um, I worked closely with them. Uh, when this book was serialized in a very, you know, big, uh, in the Daily Mail, you know, very big circulation mm. newspaper, mm. you know, I worked well with them. The actual journalists I've always worked well with, it's the editors putting in the headlines that are always the problem. <laughs> and uh, and so the inappropriate headline, you know, just for example, in the Daily Mail, we were talking about, you know, a frequency of sex and, and uh, sexual behaviors among older women, or whatever. And, um, and then that the headline writer put something about promiscuity. Now, 
I, I, I can't believe, I, mean, I wouldn't dream of using a word like that. It's so value-laden. And, and actually, I thought it was a word that hadn't been used since about 1973. So it, but, the, but it appeared in the newspaper. I was furious. Oh, I'm so angry. On the whole, it was, it was well covered. I got some I said, very good reviews, very good interviews. However, uh, you may have heard of a, a particular disaster that happened um, when I was talking about this at a Hay Literary Festival, which is you know, the major literary festival in this country. And I was giving a popular talk. You know, and I, I do, when I talk about this stuff, I fill it full of jokes. And um, mm-hmm. one of the aspects I was talking about was uh, the, the finding that the frequency of sex has declined um, among same-sex couples between 16 and 44. Um, they were reporting in 1990 having sex five times a month and in 2000 about four times a month and then a median of three times a month in 2010. And um, so I made some fatuous joke by saying, oh, well, at this rate, nobody will be having any sex at all by 2000. 40 and and then and then i said well why not and i said and then quite seriously i said actually the people who did this research are suggesting that decline of sex could very much be be because of increased um, use of electronic media. People have got their phones all the time. People are, you know, so engaged with communication with everybody <laughs> that uh, that time for intimacy is, is being shrunk. Um, and I then I made the joke that, oh, well, I think it's to do with box sets and people saying, oh, no, dear, I'm not coming to bed now. I'm watching the latest, you know, series of Game of Thrones. <laughs> so, um, so I thought, you know, and it got a laugh. But a journalist in the audience for a major newspaper didn't quite get the joke. And the next day, there was a story saying, Cambridge professor says that there will be no sex by 2030 because of Game of Thrones. (laughs) And um, I was a bit cross (laughs) and complained, and they changed the article online. But then it was too late because the way journalism works now is that somebody writes an article and every other outlet then picks it up. So this story went around the world. I've just got, um, you know, so many headlines in all countries and different languages all to do with this cambridge professor who says there's going to be no more sex in the future because of game of thrones and you put together sex cambridge professor and game of thrones and it gives them a chance to put some salacious photograph up as well so um, (laughs) it was um i I thought oh there's you know 40 years of reputation you know gone down the drain in one go um in fact nobody took any notice and uh, i've used it to get a huge amount of laughs whenever i give a talk about this (laughs) Uh, that's a a wonderful story what makes doing research about sex so difficult oh i think i think it's a it's a tremendously uh, difficult idea to do you know uh, rigorous statistical research on um i mean doing any you know you want to find out about something that essentially is private um you can't just go out and see it you can't put cameras in bedrooms or if, if you did it probably change behavior rather a lot and so and yet you want to know what people are up to so the only way really is to ask them and um, although there are some indirect signs you might be able to use as well and you ask someone so you know you can't just walk up to somebody and ask them how many times you know, do you have sex in, in a month or whatever except some people do i mean there's some places people do do street interviews of this stuff which i don't think would be that reliable but actually if you want to do it seriously it's it's expensive because the people who do the big surveys don't even want to do online surveys they don't want to use the standard panels they don't want to use telephone surveys so you have to send someone to randomly chosen houses and they have to interview arrange for an interview with somebody spend time explaining to them why they're doing this why this is valuable small reward about you know 30 pounds about 50 50, 60 dollars then do an interview which the person speaking uh, has to be guaranteed that it's going to be anonymous and uh, they're sort of you know 
real serious secrets aren't going to go any further. So this is all done both in the US and in the UK. These surveys will be done with, with computer-assisted interviewing where the person giving the responses uh, is doing it onto a laptop and the interviewer cannot see either the questions or the answers that are being put in. And then the laptop's closed down and so nobody should be able to identify the answers with the individual. So these are difficult, these are very difficult surveys to do. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. The topic today, sex and numbers. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me are panelists, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media, Journalism and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. Our special guest is David Spiegelhalter, author of Sex by Numbers and Stats Professor at the University of Cambridge. I had a question to follow up on uh, reliability. One of the things I read was that women admit to having more frequent sex if wired up to a lie detector and, and was one of your studies. So since people lie about <laughs> reporting sex all the time, how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, it is a problem, of course. Um, There are various checks you can do. First is an internal check um, by asking the same question in two different ways at different ends of the interview. You can get some check um, over time by seeing whether essentially whole cohorts of people answering reliably um, and it's an interesting design what you do essentially in 2000 uh, they were asking 25 year old women when did you first have sex and then in 2010 you ask 35 year old women when did you first have sex mm-hmm. and they should give similar answers uh-huh. and so you can do a sort of consistent they're not the same women but they're the same group of people so if you're doing a good survey and people are giving good answers you should give equal reasonable answers so that's an in a way a global check you can get do a global check by you know you asking people whether they've had abortions or not, and then checking that with abortion rates. So there are certain external checks you can do. Um, actually, just you know checking whether someone is telling the truth or not is extremely difficult um, mm-hmm. at the time. You try to engender trust um, and so on, and the, the interviewers. I've talked to the interviewers on these surveys, really believe they are getting reliable answers. However, we know there's some areas where there clearly is a lack of reliability. And the classic one is asking people how many sexual partners they've they've got, they've had in their lifetime. And um, the the point is that mathematically, if you've got a a closed population of men and women, then the average in terms of the mean number of sexual partners that uh, men have got, had, and women have had, should be the same. Uh, it must be <laughs> logically because it's the same. There's a single number of partnerships, and so the average number of partners should be the same. And it isn't. Um, in previous surveys, earlier surveys, uh, women will often report, or men will often report, uh, will on average report twice as many having had twice as many partners <laughs> as women have. That gap is is lower now, and it's certainly lower for for um, if you ask about recent recent sexual partners, the gap gets a lot lower. And the fact that the gap gets low when you ask about recent sexual partners suggests this may be something as much to do with uh, memory recall and reporting as it is to what you might call social desirability bias, as it's known about. Uh-huh. Generally, women not wanting to admit that they've had as many sexual partners as men. And, and there's all sorts of other reasons people have suggested. Is it that um, non, or we're not including uh, female prostitutes in the survey? And yet that, that may you know, comprise a lot of the partnerships of men. So all sorts of reasons have been included for this. I think there's a, a big mix of reasons. There's some evidence, and this is a lovely study done on in American University, a randomized trial in which students were asked 
were randomized into three groups and then asked how many sexual partners have you had and one group was uh, guaranteed anonymity uh, another group was uh, had the sort of threat of, of, of revelation because uh, one of their peers just came and picked up the paper and took it away and could see it and another group was wired up to a lie detector now the lie detector was fake you know, it was just some machine with wires on it. It didn't. It didn't have anything. It didn't. It wasn't a lie detector. But they were told it was a lie detector. And the evidence in this randomized study was that women who were wired up to the lie detector did admit to having slightly more sexual partners. And there was a significant difference. Wasn't there was an interaction for men? There wasn't an effect of the lie detector. So it suggests there's some element of perhaps social desirability bias, perhaps just, but also perhaps just effort made. There's a, there's a sort of suggestion, and this is, I don't think there's strong evidence for this, is that if you ask women to recall their sexual partners, they will start um, counting and remembering names and people. There may be some they don't want to remember and they might just rule it out and not use. People who've had many sexual partners, if you ask men, they might be more liable to make a rough estimate and this is shown in the in the raw data when you look at the fascinating graphs of the raw data because you see severe rounding once you get above 10 or 15 but 10 people are obviously clearly remember you know they might be remembering names and faces i should say for people men and women between 35 and 44 the most common response is that they've had one sexual partner that's the most common about six of, of, of people say that um, but then after about 10 or so you know people obviously start getting a bit vague you know, faces start blurring into into each other and they start saying 15, 20, 30, <laughs> 50, 500, you know, whatever. <laughs> There's one really notable man who said 47. So I, I, think, <laughs> I, I think he's a statistician, I mean, really. <laughs> Very good, thank you. One thing you bring up in your book uh, is you talk a bit about Alfred Kinsey's uh, yeah. research. And I, I did my PhD at IU. I worked pretty closely with the Kinsey Institute at Times wow. on some yeah. stuff. And so I was sort of interested in getting your take on kind of the way his work stood up because it's been controversial over time yep. and just sort of what do we know? What does Kinsey tell us about sex that that is still something that that scientists are sort of using and working with? Exactly. Kinsey was extraordinary. It's just fascinating because I, you know, then I started reading the biographies and everything like that. He was extraordinary. I mean, in, in, in compared with how surveys are done now, he, he, well, he invented them really, but he broke every rule. I mean, that things have changed completely. He would make friends with people, offer them a cigarette, use ordinary language rather than more medical terms. Um, he would go out of his way to find extreme cases. He'd visit gay bars to interview all of those. He'd go, a lot of people were from prison that he interviewed in order to get sort of extremes of behavior he was a biologist he, he, he was really interested in 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 in, in um, the range of behavior and so he he enlisted some extraordinary statistics which i mean are, are quite surprising now you know let alone um you know what they must have been like in in the late 1940s yeah. it was quite shocking at the time um and uh, the other thing he did, of course, his interviews were so he just filled he did no coding scheme, no um, uh, he just filled up a, a sheet of paper filled up with sort of hieroglyphics of the secret scheme that wasn't written down about how the questions, what the responses, what the little squeals meant in terms of the responses to the questions. So um, 
he was extraordinary, and uh, but and a lot of his his stats are treated rather skeptically because of his sampling methods. He yeah. didn't completely against random sampling or anything like that. What has incredibly stood up to the test of time is the uh, Kinsey scale of of sexuality. Essentially, the fact that he one of the first people to uh, stop considering people as being you know uh, either heterosexual or homosexual, gay or straight, uh, what we might call them now, um, and he had a, a you know invented a whole range from naught to six in terms of the degree of, of same-sex attraction and behavior um, with, with you know, complete heterosexuality at one end, complete homosexuality at the other, and a whole range in between. And that, you know, which he, it was an enormous um, insight that he had. I was curious, what, what was the most surprising thing you learned in the course of doing the research for this book? Can't resist talking about the sex ratio. And this is just how many boys are born for every every girl. And in Western countries now, it's about 21 boys for every 20 girls. And uh, so a sex ratio of 105, that's said, 105 boys for 100 girls. Um, it's higher in countries which practice some selective abortion, and uh, but about 105 is the current rate. Now, you may think, you know, first of all, you know, what's that got to do with sexual behavior, and why is that interesting? In the book, I show a plot which... I haven't never seen done before, which is taking UK data, which records the sex ratio or the number of boys and girls born back to 1837. And I've never seen that plotted before. And when you plot it, you get some incredibly distinct patterns. Um, what you do is you get a declining sex ratio from about 1870 to about to about 1910. It's a really, it comes steadily downwards. No, it actually reaches, a, it reaches an absolute bottom at about 1900. Then it starts going up again. And then you get these massive spikes and the massive spikes were in 1919 and 1944, yeah, and a war. bitter one in 1973. Huh. So what's that? That's the fact that more boys are born at the end of wars. And I hadn't heard this. I mean, when you start researching it, you realize this has been discussed for quite a long time. And I didn't know anything about that. I thought it was riveting. And there's all sorts of explanations why this might, why this might happen. You know, suggestion that there's some evolutionary reason that tendency among some animals that the the gender of the offspring is slightly affected by the status that that gender might have in in the society, so that somehow there seems to be some this is the Trivers Willard hypothesis. It's known as that some ability to influence the gender by the um, by essentially the needs of society. I, I I don't believe that's operating in this case, and there is an interesting reason that someone suggested, which I I kind of like. And I so I liked I'm a supporter of it. And this is the, there's some evidence that actual sexual frequency influences to a very small extent the gender. So you know people have more sex, younger people having more sex will tend slightly to have more boys. And why is this might why might this be the case? Um, there's some evidence again that if you leave earlier in the cycle, there's some tendency to for a little excess of being a boy before the time of peak fertility, um, just before ovulation. So if you um, conceive earlier in the cycle, some uh, some tendency to be a boy. Now, why do those things fit together? Well, if you have lots of sex, it's more likely you will conceive earlier because there's more of a chance that you've actually already conceived by the time of peak fertility. When do people have lots of sex? Why should that be associated with the end of wars? Coming home on leave, coming home after being demobbed. People having lots of sex. The um, enormous amount of children born at the end of wars. 1919 in the UK, more children were born than any other year 
before or since. Oh, wow. um, hmm. And uh, so, the, so the suggestion that some people are strongly made, and I really believe, is that um, uh, you have more sex at the end, uh, more boys at the end of wars, just because people are having more sex. Frantic sex. So, um, well, maybe not that frantic, but then you're frequent. Um, and uh, there's some uh, the, the support I, I see for this also is that the, the decline in sex ratio in the UK between 1870 and 1900, um, now why might that be declining? Well, there's simultaneous historical evidence that people were having less sex at the end of the Victorian period. There's a big decline in fertility in the UK at the second half of the 19th century. It's when we had our fertility transition from kind of natural fertility, five, six children down to two, happened between about 1870 and about 1910. Um, Extraordinary change in society. And because women were controlling their own fertility. But they were not on the whole, using artificial contraception. And historians have suggested this essentially was abstinence or the continence theory. There's big emphasis on continence, essentially on not having sex. So there's some indirect support there for the fact that, of going together, that um, uh, the decline in the sex ratio, I think, is associated with just people having less sex. But don't you shouldn't use this as a way to try to you know fix to have a boy or a girl. Um, you need about you need about you know three hundred thousand births to spot these differences. <laughs> these are tiny differences. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and our discussion considers how scientists study sex. David, what is the most frustrating thing that you have seen in the news when it relates to? Uh, the reporting of statistics, either related to this work or maybe other work you've done? Oh, God, I get so angry so often. I can't remember. When did I last get angry? I start (laughs) shouting at the radio and the things like that. I think the fact that on the whole, statistics are used as arguments. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're not used. No matter what people claim, they're used to persuade rather than to inform. Um, I just challenge anyone. Every time you hear a number in the news or in a newspaper, people will be tending to use it in order to make something look big and dangerous. And uh, this really annoys me. You know, the numbers just being used as rhetorical arguments rather than to inform form people and um and of course it happens all the time i mean it happens in in our case in in, in the brexit discussions for mm-hmm. uh you know last year before the referendum you know a huge misuse of statistics there and and frankly an inability of for example um interviewers on the radio to challenge those adequately at the time i don't think they're just not well enough trained to to do that and once a number has got out once a number is in circulation it's very difficult to do anything about it it just takes on a life of its own so so how do we combat that misuse Uh, It's very difficult. I think um, you have to, in a way, be ready for it. I think, you know, you have to challenge more at the time. Uh, Being a suggestion, which I think is quite nice on uh, major radio programs in the UK, that if someone does, if someone's using numbers in an argument, that the fact-checking team of the BBC or something goes at it hammer and tongs and they should within 20 minutes or so be able to come back even if the, the interview's finished onto something else within the same program you should be able to criticize that number that argument even if you can't do it if it's a live program if, obviously if it's recorded you can it's easier but if it's live that you should be able to fact check and get back there immediately it's no good doing it a day later it's too late too late you know, you had an earlier book called The Norm Chronicles, and, mm-hmm. and in your and in your subtitle, it was stories and numbers about danger and death. 
Mm. So you you think a lot about the relationship between stories. You've told us a few here today and numbers. Can you talk yeah. about how you think of those as com uh, compatible? Uh, I mean, this is the thing where obviously I know I should be talking to you as as a journalist because <laughs> I think that I think telling stories with numbers is just the most interesting topic now. It's it's the topic of the future, and it's I mean, data is more than just data journalism. I think it's it's, it's when it, it's data driving the story. But it's choosing a narrative and a framing that makes a story, you know, uh, engaging, will carry people through, make them interested in, I would say, the facts, but at least, you know, some some quantification um, uh, by using good storytelling, using imagery, using um, individual stories, you know, anecdotes, perhaps. But that don't that, but the anecdotes serve to reinforce what the numbers are telling you, rather than being a, a, an opposite. Too often, you know, storytelling is based on extreme cases that don't represent actually the body of evidence. Um, and so, I, I, I just wish I was better at it. You know, this is something <laughs> I'm interested. In, but both in terms of visualizations, um, you know, sort of dynamic infographics that can tell a story almost like a storyboard style, but also, of course, in verbal narrative to um, to be able to you know include. Numbers numbers, you know, even graphs into a story that without putting people off, mm -hmm. you know, because it is, I, even I, when I'm just reading, if I start finding numbers and things in there, you know, it breaks it up. It means you have to stop, you know, in Kahneman's language, you have to start thinking slowly instead of thinking fast. And we, we want to make people think slowly, but we want to keep them engaged enough so they don't just give up. Um, and I think this is, the, you know, the, the real challenge of, of the future in a society where, where factual, we all know that, um, you know, factual narratives are, you know, are under challenge. You do a brilliant job of, of, of the story and the narrative, David. I mean, I think, <laughs> I think you're, 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 there's, there's lots of evidence for the effectiveness of, of what you've done. So kudos <laughs> on that. Uh, I'm curious, you know, one, one aspect of the storytelling and the narrative, one, one device that we often we often see is the two sides of the story, even though the yeah. sides don't have equal weight. So Richard and I have talked a lot about this, and and this yeah. is you know trying to to, to com combat that. And, yeah. and, and another yeah. part of it that I've I've liked in your book, you know, talking about the mean and the median, as, mm. as, and differentiating that. And I and and I'll, I'll even add more complexity to the question, so you'll have it'll be make it impossible to track what I'm asking. Uh, you know, just the idea of how, of conveying the uncertainty and distribution of responses to yeah. to an audience that seems most enamored with with having some point value that they yeah, really yeah, yeah, invest yeah. in. I mean, that, that's why I think um, number of sexual partners is such a good. You know, I love showing that to. All. I can I could give a whole lecture really on one graph because it's got so many interesting features. You know, if you look at the number of sexual partners, you know, the most common value is one. You know, the mode. But, you know, so you could say, is that representative? Um, if you look at the average, it's really quite high because it's so influenced by, I mean, actually, you know, the graph, I can't even put it on a slide because it goes out to thousands that some people are saying. And that's going to be enormously influential and drag the average up, just like um, Bill Gates wandering into a room rather changes the average income. But he doesn't change the median income at all. And similarly, the median um, is really the most useful I think, um, uh, communication of what's going on. And um, the thing is, I, I'm terribly pedantic, as all statisticians are, about the use of language. So, <laughs> you know, I would talk about, um, you know, the, the average number of sexual partners of, of, of some of people in, the, uh, in society. But then that's different from the number of sexual partners of the average person. By the first, I mean the mean. And by the second, I mean the median, the average mm -hmm. person being the one who's halfway along. 
and you know how many sexual partners have they got so you know anybody hearing those things might not even distinguish the two um you know the 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 average income and the income of the average person are, are completely different and I, because I'm, you know, very careful in my language, I can distinguish those, and I notice when someone else distinguishes those. But it's very easy for someone who isn't realising what's going on to just think they're the same thing, which they decidedly aren't. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. David, thank you so much for such an interesting conversation today. No, thanks very much for having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. Stay tuned and keep following us on Twitter or iTunes. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.